0: The following sermon, entitled Made Like Unto His Brethren, was preached on the morning of December 4th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's word this morning to the book of Hebrews. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. For unto the angels hath He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see, but now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, for it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted." Thus far, we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 14. This is found in the back of our Psalters on page 9. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, "...took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin excepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity, that he is our mediator, and with his innocence and and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. While reading a book of Christian poems some time ago, came across this quote from the Anglican preacher and poet of the 17th century named John Donne. He said in a poem, quote, "...twas much that man..." was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. End quote. Let me read that again. "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more." John Donne is making a comparison between two truths. On the one hand, there is the truth that man was created in the image of God, so that from a creaturely point of view, we have a likeness unto God as those who have been recreated in His image. And that's an astounding truth. That's much, recognizes this poet. But what is even more, what's even more astounding, more amazing, is that God should be made like man. And that's the truth. And that truth that he has in view is the truth of Jesus Christ being born, of the Son of God taking to himself our flesh and blood. These are both astounding truths, but at least in one man's mind, if you have to compare the two, while it's truly amazing that man should be made like God in His image, it's even more astounding that God would become a man Himself. And that's the truth that's on the foreground in this 14th Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a truth that we are up to. And this is an important truth in light of what we've already seen in the Heidelberg Catechism. For the Heidelberg Catechism taught us back in Lord's Days 5 and 6 that the mediator we need must be both one who is very God and very man at the same time. Unless He has both of those things true about Him at the same time, He cannot save us. Last time, in Lord's Day 13, we saw that Jesus Christ is indeed God. That was a part of the truth that came out when we looked at those names. only begotten Son and Lord embedded in the truth that He is the only begotten Son is that Jesus Christ is God. He possesses a divine nature. So now the catechism has shown us, yes, this Jesus Christ is God. And now we need to see at the very same time, He is also a real and complete man. And that's the truth that comes out in this Lord's Day as it's taught clearly in the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 2, which has that familiar language of Jesus Christ being made like unto his brethren in all things he became a man. So this morning let's consider Lord's Day 14, using as our theme, made like unto. His brethren. First, let's look at the meaning of this. Second, let's look at the the wonder of this and see how truly amazing this is. And then, third, the prophet. Scripture teaches us that God the Son was made like unto us. He became a man, and this is what stands out in Hebrews chapter two. This truth is taught as clearly here as anywhere else in all of Scripture. And we see this, for example, in verse 11. Verse 11 we read, For both He that sanctifieth, that's Jesus Christ, and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. That He's not ashamed to call us whom He sanctifies brethren. We're all of one and we are brethren. It's indicating we're all of the same family. Which family? Well, we all share in the same humanity. Jesus Christ is a man. Verse 14 teaches us the same truth. For as much then His children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. When our children are born, they share in; they become partakers of our flesh and blood. They have the same human nature, and this verse is telling us that just as that's true with children who are born of their parents, so Jesus Christ was made partaker of our flesh and blood. He became a man. And again in verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. In all things He's been made like unto us. He became a man. Thus we see that the catechism is simply summarizing what Scripture itself teaches us when it teaches us this very truth in question and answer 35. Question and answer 35. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. The answer is that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man of the flesh and blood of God the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that He might also be the true seed of David, like unto His brethren in all things sin excepted. It's saying that Jesus Christ assumed a true human nature. He became a man so that what's in view here is the truth of the Incarnation. The Word being made flesh. So that's the truth itself. But now, how did this happen? What explains this? In what manner did Jesus, did the Son of God become a man? And the answer to that question is found in that very language that is a part of the Apostles' Creed. Remember, we're going through the various articles of the Apostles' Creed and we're up to the article that says that we believe that He was conceived by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary. That language is telling us how, in what manner, the Son of God became a man. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. That is, the Holy Ghost is the One who formed the human nature of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary, out of the substance of Mary. And what is more, it was by the power of the Spirit That the Son of God then assumed that human nature so that the human and the divine were united together. That's the work of the Spirit. And then in time, the Son of God then was born of a woman. That is, Mary, having become pregnant, having carried that child in her womb for a number of months in time, gave birth to one who is both God and man at the same time. Now notice that this means that Jesus Christ was born into this world in the same way that every one of us was. It's not the case that Jesus Christ just appeared on the scene in Bethlehem, the way the angels just suddenly appeared that night and heralded the good news that the Savior had been born. Nor did Jesus Christ appear at His birth the way He would appear after His resurrection. After His resurrection, He would just show up in a room. He was all of a sudden there. But that's not how it worked the first time He came into this world. Nor is it the case that His humanity was formed up in heaven and then having had His humanity formed in heaven, He then came down into this world. That's how He'll come again the second time as a real man already, but the first time He comes by being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and being born like every other single child. He became incarnate in the ordinary way. And this points us to that truth that He was made like unto His brethren in all things. So we're explaining the fact that Jesus Christ is a real man. We're explaining the truth of His humanity. And we've explained it from a general point of view thus far in this first point. But now we want to become more specific. And we do that in light of this passage that we read, which sets before us various specifics concerning His humanity. And it's in light of this passage and others that the Reformed tradition generally uses four adjectives to describe Jesus Christ's human nature, and all four of them are found here in this passage. First, concerning Christ's humanity, we see that He has a real human nature. A real human nature. We say that in light of verse 14, for example, for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also likewise Himself took part of the same, that is, of our flesh and blood. He has a real human nature. and That's why the Catechism says what it does, that He took upon Himself the, the very nature of man, and you could translate that as the The real nature of man. So that what we're saying here is that Jesus Christ did not simply appear to be a man. From an outward point of view, He did not simply come in the form of a man, but not actually possess that human nature. In the Old Testament, there were times that that was true. In the Old Testament, we read of that angel of the Lord, who is the Lord Himself, and He's coming in the form of a man, and we recognize that this is the Son of God appearing in the form of man. So that we have these pre-incarnate manifestations of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, the Son of God did not assume that human nature; He just appeared as a man. It just was in the form of a man but when he's born he has a real human nature he truly assumes that human nature and that human nature is just like ours hebrews 2 verse 14 says he was made partaker he he shares in our flesh and blood our flesh it means jesus christ has muscles, He has organs. And what is more, He's a partaker of our blood. That is Jesus Christ when He walked upon this earth. He had a vascular system just like ours. He had a, a heart that pumped blood. He had veins that carried that blood away from the heart and the lungs to all the tissues in the body delivering oxygen to all the cells. And then He had veins that brought that back. That blood back to the heart. should have said arteries carrying it away. For those who are more in the medical field, please do not get caught up on the details like that. The point is, he had a real vascular system. Which points us to the fact that he has a real human nature. He was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. A real human nature. That first of all. Second, Jesus Christ's human nature was a complete human nature and is a complete human nature. That is, it includes both a human body and a human soul. And that comes out from verse 17 here when it says, wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. As humans, we have both a body and soul. There are two parts to us. And Jesus Christ assumed both parts. That is, he did not come just to inhabit a body, nor did his human, his divine nature and person replace the human soul and mind, but he has a human body as well as a human soul. He's made like unto us in all things. And well, this does not come out as much in the Heidelberg Catechism. It does come out in the Belgian Confession, for example. Belgian Confession, Article 18. The very end, this concerns the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We read, and did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul that He might be a real man. And then it goes on to explain the the importance of this. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that He should take both upon Him to save both. Because we fell both body and soul because both are subject to sin. He had to redeem both. He has a complete Human nature. He has a body like ours. A nose, eyes, a mouth, ears, hands, arms, legs, feet. Every part of our body. But then also, is every part of the immaterial side of us. The, the mind, the soul, the, the will, the heart from a spiritual point of view. He has a complete human nature. First, His human nature is real. Second, it's complete. Third, Like us, His human nature is weakened. Weakened. He was subject to infirmities is the idea. For verse 10 of the chapter we read, says this, For it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus Christ would suffer here below. And verse 18 adds at the very adds that he suffered being tempted. And what this is teaching us is that Jesus Christ was subject to infirmities, so that it was not the case that he was given the same human nature that Adam had before the fall, but he's given a post-fall human nature that's subject to infirmities. To put it differently, nor was Jesus Christ born as a prince in a palace who was so pampered his whole life that he really has no clue what real life is like. But he was given a weakened human nature and experienced all the, the difficulties of living, living in this fallen world. So that, for example, Jesus Christ grew tired At times. For we read in Scripture about how he was walking through Samaria and after a long day's journey he has to sit down at Jacob's well because he is weary. What is more, Jesus Christ felt sorrow. For when His good friend Lazarus died, He wept outside the tomb. Jesus Christ could sweat. In fact, when He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read that the prospect of going to the cross was so ominous, it was looming so large before Him that He sweat drops of blood. And Hebrews 5, verse 7 tells us that as He prayed there in the Garden, it was with strong crying and tears. All of this points to the fact that He had a, a weakened human nature subject to infirmities. So the Reformed tradition uses four adjectives to describe Christ's human nature. First, it was real. Second, complete. Third, weakened. And now fourth, the Reformed tradition speaks of His human nature as a central human nature. And now here, admittedly, the term is not as helpful But let's explain what's meant by it. That Jesus Christ has a central human nature means that He was born in the sphere of the covenant as the fulfillment of promise. Born in the sphere of the covenant as fulfillment of promise. This comes out in Hebrews 2, verse 16, for example. For verily He took Not on him the human nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He was born from the line of Abraham as the book of Galatians makes even more explicit. And elsewhere, Scripture teaches us that he's the the promised son of David. And the Heidelberg Catechism picks up on that, for example, when it says that he might be also the true seed of David. And what this is saying is that Jesus Christ It's a part of that promised line. He, He was not born of the descendants of Cain, but of Seth. He was not born among the sons of Ham or Japheth, but among the children of Shem. He's not a descendant of Esau, but of Jacob. He's a part of that covenantal line running through the whole of the Old Testament. And in that connection, he was born into the sphere of the covenant, into the church community. Jesus Christ was not born a Philistine. He was not born an Assyrian or a a Babylonian or a Persian or a Roman. He was born a a Jew, an Israelite. And what is more, He was born right there in the Promised Land. Not in some faraway land. Not in modern-day China or Russia or America, but Within the promised land. And all this shows us that He has a central human nature. He was born into the sphere of the covenant. Made like unto us in that respect too. And He was born as the fulfillment of promise. He is the promised seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. The son of David. Which is to say, He is the fulfillment of the covenant for he truly is god with us and because he is in fact god with us we see the wonder of this we've looked at the meaning that christ was made like unto his brother and now we need to see how glorious how astonishing this truth is and the wonder is really twofold first the wonder is that in Jesus Christ we have, therefore, one who is both God and man at the same time? And the Heidelberg Catechism has now shown that both are true, and they're both true at the same time. It comes out from question answer thirty-five. Notice the starting point of question answer thirty-five: that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth. True eternal God took upon him the very nature of man, it's saying that when Jesus christ when the Son of God became a man, he did not lay aside his divinity. We have the god's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, he's still God, his deity is in no way diminished, but now he's taken upon himself the very nature of man he became a man and this too is the teaching of scripture this comes out in the book of hebrews for example in hebrews chapter 1 we have a a beautiful statement concerning christ's deity verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. It's saying that this Jesus Christ, He is God. He's the the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. So at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, there's a clear testimony to Christ's deity. And then in the very next chapter, without any sort of contradiction, we have one of the clear statements concerning His humanity. Both are true at the same time. And what a wonder this is. How many billions, even trillions, trillions of children have been born into this world? Every one of them unique, Every one of them distinct, so that even if you have identical twins, they're still two different individuals. But not one of the billions and trillions, excuse me, I should say, only one of the billions and trillions of children who were born into this world is the Son of God in human flesh. That makes him altogether unique. There's a wonder here, and this is such an astonishing wonder that really the church can't even explain it. We've certainly, tried. Churches wrestled with the question: How are we to understand this? How do we explain? How do we articulate the fact that this, this Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man at the same time? In wrestling with that question, there have been many who have given wrong. Who have given wrong explanations. Wrong understandings. So that some have explained it in such a way as to deny His full humanity. Others have explained it in such a way as to deny His full deity. Others have made Him two separate persons. Still others have completely Mashed everything up together and done away with the distinction between the human and the divine nature. And over against those errors, the churches had to set forth the orthodox understanding of who is this Jesus Christ and how do we understand that He's both God and man at the same time. And The orthodox expression is that He is one person with two distinct natures. As to His person, He is the Son of God. And because He is the Son of God, not only with respect to His person, He also therefore has a a divine nature. But then, the Son of God took to Himself a human nature. He clothed Himself with our humanity so that now united in that one person, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, there is both a human nature and a divine nature. Now, this does not mean that Jesus Christ is part human, part man. We shouldn't think of some mythical creature where He's he's half this and half that. No, He's fully God and fully man. And both natures are united in the one person, Jesus Christ. The Son of God. And this is the truth that's set forth in the Creed of Chalcedon. This is found in the back of our Psalters on page 85, 84 into 85. This is the outstanding statement concerning Jesus Christ teaching the unity of the divine person and the union and distinction of the divine and human natures of Christ. And we confess and believe this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged, in two natures. And now notice this especially. That these two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. And if you're is like mine, those words are in italics because they're the heart and center of this. How do we explain this union of the two natures? Well, they're, they are indeed united, but in such a way that They're not confused, they're not changed, they're not divided, nor are they separated. And notice that the best that the church can do is put it in the negative. When it finally comes time to say, here's how the two natures are united into the one person, we can't even state it positively. We have to leave it as it's not this, it's not that. Don't think of it this way. Because it's such a wonder. It's such an astonishing truth. It's such a miracle that it goes beyond our comprehension. We can't articulate it with words. Because there's no one like Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man At the very same time. This is truly a wonder. But Now there's another part to the wonder. Because the wonder is not only that Jesus Christ is both God and man, the wonder is also that He's sinless. He's sinless. In other words, He was made like unto us in all things, with this one exception, and that's the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism says, at the very end, that he was like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And it's drawing from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for example. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It was without sin. Understand, we're saying this about his human Nature. There's no reason to assert this concerning His divine person and nature because as to His divine person and nature, He's perfect. He's righteous. We're saying this about His human nature that it's sinless. And the Catechism elaborates on what's all included in this in question and answer 36. Question and answer 36. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? says that He is our mediator and with His innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin. But notice here, those words, His innocence and His perfect holiness. Christ, on the one hand, is perfectly innocent. That is, He was not born guilty. makes Him distinct from us. We were certainly not born innocent, but we were born guilty because We are the descendants of Adam and his guilt was imputed, passed down to us. But that was not true of Jesus Christ. The guilt of Adam was not imputed to Him. And thus from the time that He was born until the time that He died, His his legal standing as far as He was concerned was that He was innocent. He was righteous. Though His... Enemies accused Him otherwise. They brought all these charges against Him. He's guilty of this. He's guilty of that. Nevertheless, He was and remains perfectly innocent. The Catechism says not only that He was perfectly innocent, but in addition, it speaks of His perfect holiness. His perfect holiness. And really, we can divide this into two things because His perfect holiness includes the fact that He was not born with a corrupt or depraved nature. And again, that makes them distinct from us because we were born with a depraved nature. Catechism has that in view when it speaks of the fact that I was conceived and brought forth in sin. I was born with an old man of sin. So there's a part of me that still hates God, still hates the neighbor, that's inclined to all evil that was not true of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not have an old man of sin with him. He didn't have this part of him that was bent on sin. Never once could Jesus Christ say the evil that I would not that I do, but the good that I would that I that I don't do. He didn't have that struggle. Because he did not have a corrupt nature. That's a part of his perfect holiness. No depraved nature. But a part of His perfect holiness is also that He never actually sinned. Not once. And again, this makes Him distinct from us. Because when the devil comes tempting us, we often give in. When the devil whispers his lies into our ears, so often we believe those lies. When he sets out his... His traps, we become ensnared. But not so with Jesus Christ. He was tempted. Scripture itself, Hebrews 2 verse 18 says that he himself hath suffered being tempted and that the the devil presented the allure of sin. The devil tried to get him to sin. But Jesus Christ always resisted. He's perfectly holy. So He's made like unto us in all things, but with this exception, without sin. Now, how is that possible? Especially, how could He be born of a woman, a sinner, but yet not have that original guilt and that original corruption? Well, the explanation on the one hand is that we are talking about the Son of God. That as to His person, He is the second person of the Trinity. And because He's the second person of the Trinity, it's not possible to impute guilt to Him. You see, guilt is imputed to a person. If one of us was convicted of some crime, the judge would not declare, I find your hands guilty. But he would say, I find you guilty. Guilt is imputed to one's person. And as to His person, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. You can't impute guilt to Him. It's impossible. So that explains why there's no original guilt in Jesus Christ. But now what about original corruption? Why no depraved nature? The explanation there, is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in His conception. For a part of that work was not just forming Christ's humanity out of the substance of Mary, but also shielding that humanity, as it were, from the corruption of Mary. For she did have a depraved nature. She too was a sinner. And that sinfulness would have been passed on Otherwise, apart from the work of the Spirit, to filter out that corruption, if we can put it that way, He prevented the corrupt nature from being passed on to Jesus Christ. And He devoted, He consecrated Christ's humanity perfectly unto God. So that though Jesus Christ is a real, complete man, He's nevertheless sinless. And what a wonder that is. How amazing. And few people have expressed the wonder of this in my mind better than the Puritan theologian John Owen, whom I now paraphrase This is a wonder. That one was born perfectly sinless from the loins of a sinful man born of a sinner, even after there had been no innocent flesh in the world for 4,000 or more years. Think of Christ's genealogy and all the names on that roll. You look at those names And there's not one on there who is sinless. Every one of them is a sinner. And yet, when you get to Jesus Christ, you have the sinless One. And the fact that He's born of this sinful line, born of a sinner, and yet He Himself is sinless, is amazing. For as John Owen points out, it'd be one thing to find Such a one as this. Growing up as a tender plant in paradise. That garden that God created in the beginning where everything was perfect. If you find a perfect, sinless individual there, well, that makes sense because God created all things good. But that's not where we find Jesus Christ. We find Jesus Christ... Coming from the line of David, sprouting from that that stump of Jesse, and yet he himself being a perfect and spotless bud, growing up in a, a, a waste-hollowing wilderness, as it were. It's a wonder that his human nature was. Derive from a human nature that was not only guilty but a curse, not only corrupt but full of sin, unclean, and yet he himself is not defiled, he himself is entirely sinless. This is a wonder, especially because this means he's able to sanctify us. That's the connection to Hebrews 2, verse 11. Both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. If Jesus Christ is going to sanctify us, make us pure, make us holy, make us clean, well, He Himself must be free from every stain. Free from every imperfection, every spot, every blemish. And He was. Perfectly sinless. And oh, how profitable this is for us. Oh, how beneficial this is for us. And that's what question answer 36 especially teaches us. What, is, what profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That He is our mediator, and with His innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. What's the prophet? The prophet is that He is therefore our Savior. And that as our Savior, He covers in the sight of God my sin. Or to use the language of Hebrews 2, verse 17, He makes reconciliation. Wherefore, in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And you understand, He cannot do that unless He is a real man. That's what Hebrews 2 verse 17 is telling us. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved Him. It was necessary to be made like unto His brothers. It has to be this way. Otherwise, He cannot make reconciliation. Because remember, the wages of sin is death and it was man who sinned. It was man who by his sin therefore earned the penalty of death and therefore it must be someone who is a man that pays the debt for that sin. If he's not a real man, he cannot save us. What this reminds us, therefore, is that He became a man with a view to our salvation that He might pay the debt. In other words, He became a man. He was born a man so that He could die as a man. There's a connection between His saving work on the cross and His incarnation. The two go hand in hand, even as we find here in this chapter. Because by now you're convinced, yes, Hebrews 2 tells us all about Christ's humanity. But did you notice what else it tells us all about? His suffering and death. Because the two truths go together. Tells us about that in verse 9. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, and then later on that he should taste death for every man. Why is he born of a woman so that he can die? Same thing in verse 14. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The purpose of the Son of God being born, clothing Himself in His humanity, was so that He could die as a man. It was with a view to His saving work. For it was not by becoming a man that He covered our sins. The incarnation itself is not the covering. But it's by His death at the cross of Calvary. Calvary. And because He was so born and because He so died, the prophet for us is that He has now reconciled us back to our God. Our sins are covered, to use the language of the catechism. Covered in the sight of God. They're gone. When God looks upon us, He doesn't see us in our sin, but He sees us as those who are in Jesus Christ that, first of all, is the profit. The benefit of Christ's conception and nativity. But now there's a second benefit for us that comes out especially in the book of Hebrews and that's the fact that Jesus Christ is now able to sympathize with us, His people. He's a sympathetic Savior. Hebrews 2, verse 17 says that He was made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. He's compassionate. He takes pity upon us. And this is even more explicit in Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Notice there's a double negative there. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. In other words, He is able to be touched. And in fact, by putting it with a double negative, the Spirit is strengthening the positive. He's able to be touched. And the idea of that expression is that He's able to sympathize. He's a sympathetic Savior. And He's able to sympathize because He's experienced every. Imaginable infirmity. What did Jesus Christ not experience while on this earth? For as verse 18 teaches us, He was tempted. He knows more fully than we do what it is to have the devil whispering in his ear, trying to draw him Astray. Jesus Christ knows what it is to be tired. Whether that's on account of a long day of walking or whether that's on account of a long day of work. Staying up late to help other people. And then getting up before the crack of dawn to have your own personal private devotions and prayer with God. Jesus Christ knows what it is to experience grief. For as we pointed out, He shed tears outside the grave of a loved one. What is more, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to face a difficult Ominous future. But then still go through with it. Even though there was a part of Him that did not want to go through with it that asked, is there some other way? Jesus Christ knows what it is to have a friend turn on you. Whether it was having Simon Peter deny Him, Or Judas Iscariot, betray Him. In that connection, He knows what it is to be alone. To have no one there with you in your hour of need. And even if they are physically present, they've fallen asleep. He knows lingering and excruciating pain from a physical point of view. For though we rightly emphasize the spiritual component of His suffering at the cross of Calvary, there was the physical. There was the pain of being beaten. Of having a crown of thorns pressed into His head. Of being scourged. Of having nails driven through His hands and through His legs. without any prospect of it letting up. Jesus Christ knows what it is to endure mockery and reproach. For the whole of His ministry, He was ridiculed. He was scorned. Jesus Christ knows what it is to be misunderstood. To have the people who are the closest to you still not get what you must go through or what it is that you are enduring. And this is but a short list that we can make much, much longer of all that Jesus Christ endured. Is there anything that He did not experience in this life? And the point is, child of God, because He experienced all these things, He is able to sympathize with you. He is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And that's encouragement to cry out to Him. To call upon His name asking for help with the confidence of Hebrews 2, verse 18. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. Well, we do not use the English word succor anymore. The Greek word here is one of the most beautiful terms in all of Scripture. Because the literal meaning is that He runs to the cry of His people. When you call out to Him, he not only hears from heaven, He runs to your cry. And it's not just that He comes, but He's able to help. Because that too is a, a part of the idea of that word sucker. If we had a more colloquial wording here, a, a different translation, we would say He's able to help. He's able to give strength. Because that's what exactly what Jesus Christ gives to us. He gives to us the strength we need in the difficulties, the trials, and the hardships that we experience. And so, whatever your need is this morning, cry out to Him who was made like unto His brethren in all things, sin accepted. Because He is our sympathetic Savior. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for our Savior Jesus Christ. Comfort us with this Word by applying it to our hearts. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.